I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. So if you're joining us on episode five, I'd just like to say Happy New Year. And I know that this is going to be a very special episode, as is every episode, but this one in particular because it has been so hard to record. And really a lot just for logistical reasons. Between me starting school, I got back to America after two weeks in North Africa and Europe and got food poisoning in America. And it's been really hard to find this space to just record in quiet. But not only that, it's been difficult because I had been feeling for the past week that I was really in no position to be giving anyone advice because I was overwhelmed by anxiety of the future, guilt of the past, the same things that keep a lot of us strong held to emotional distressive situations. And I had to work through those things because giving advice and even just musing on your thoughts when people ask you questions is no real light matter because I always have to be of the mindset and take myself very seriously that if I do give advice that people might take it and so I like to be in a mindset where my head is clear my conscience is clear and I don't have any immediate work to do before I record these episodes so that it can be as enlightening and liberating as a process for the listener as it can be for me and so with that being said I'm super excited for 2018 I'm finally graduating college and I'm also excited for 2018 because when I think of the new year I often think of the Zora Neale Hurston quote some years ask questions and some years give answers. And I really think that 2017 asks so many questions, all which can probably be summed up by the ultimate question, which is where do we go from here? And with the energy that 2018 has been giving me and knowing that some parts of my own life and questions that we've been asking in mass as a society have to just come to some kind of close or some kind of resolve, I think that 2018 is the kind of year that answers this way. This is where we go from here. And that truly is my hope. So with that being said, I'm going to start before we get into our own questions and answers with my thoughts for this week. And this week and the past couple of weeks, I've been thinking a lot about our relationship to material things. And I've been thinking about my own relationship to material things because whenever I leave the Western world, meaning the United States or Europe, I find that there's a lot of ways, obviously, that you can differentiate cultures. But one that's become useful to me, people-oriented societies versus thing-oriented societies. People-oriented societies are societies where people's lives revolve around other people, family, community, character of self. All of these things are what constitute a life. And then you have places in the West, like America, where you have thing-oriented societies. And thing-oriented societies are places where life is basically measured by the accumulation of things, the amalgamation of property, and even the self is seen as something to be owned, to be used, to be taken care of, to be bought. To be entitled to and i've been thinking so much about our relationship with material things and particularly why we have so much anxiety towards talking about them and i think that part of the reason is that america is seen as a place where progress is supposed to be the highest good and the ultimate goal and permanence is seen as cliche and outdated And so you're constantly supposed to be accumulating more, buying more, and the idea that you're not supposed to buy new things or that you might just fix old things before buying new things is seen in this culture of impermanence as being not allowed. And I think on a personal level, for somebody who grew 
up poor or having less, there's this constant anxiety towards lack of thinking that you're not going to have enough. And so I know when I got my first jobs and when I would get my first big paychecks, especially the summers that I was working on Wall Street, I would go shopping every single day. I mean, every single day as soon as I left work, not only because I hated my job, but because every single day I wanted to prove that I could buy things, even if I didn't need them, even if I didn't necessarily want them, a lot of them I ended up giving away, got lost by the wayside. It didn't matter because these things were an extension of my success. And I think that that's part of the issue is that a lot of Americans and a lot of people in the West in general, we don't really know how to conceive of success beyond material things. And in that, we become people who seek material things as an extension of and an affirmation of the people that we want to be. And it's not only to the detriment of ourselves, but it's to the detriment of our environment. It's to the detriment of our personal relationships because we tend to not be love-seeking or community-seeking. We just tend to be thing-seeking and we hoard and hoard and hoard and buy and dispose of pretty much ad infinitum. And there's never at any point where anyone will ask you, are you sure that you need that? This is a conversation that becomes especially important when we think about the conversations that I've been having in previous episodes about self-intervention because part of self-intervening and saying, okay, what's really going on with me is asking three essential questions. What is it that I want? What is it that I need? And is what I want working to the detriment of what I need? And you can't really have those questions without thinking about your relationship to material things, thinking about what it means to buy your way in and to buy your way out and thinking about what it means to live a good life beyond just the things that you have. And I think that it becomes even harder when you superimpose social media onto it because social media is something that falsely posits itself and pretends itself to be a representation of society when in reality it's just a large advertising scheme. And so you look at people who are beautiful or successful and you say, wow, look at that person. I want their life. And a lot of times you actually have no real view inside of those people's lives. You're really viewing their lifestyles and so you see them at the beach and they're almost always advertising some kind of bikini you see them at the gym and they're advertising workout gear or tummy tea and so you're not really thinking about health and you're not really thinking about nature you're really just thinking about beauty or things as it exists through objects and so I think then the goal is to not necessarily judge ourselves but to look critically at our relationship with things and ask how can I go from living a lifestyle to living a life how can I go from measuring myself, my success, and my own sense of security with the amount of things or my access to things and instead look at my relationships critically with people, try to understand how to be a better person, how to be a better member of my community. Because in reality, as cliche as it is, those are the things that measure a good life. And when you're done with your life, the only way that our lives will truly be measured will be by the people that witness us and see who we were and can say, that was Bianca. She was a loving friend and daughter and she was impatient and she got angry when she didn't get what she wanted immediately, but she was kind and she was charitable. It's actually other people that measure our success. It's other people who get to tell our story when we're gone. Those are 
stories that can't be told through things because nobody will be able to look at your collection of Louis Vuitton wallets or walk into your house filled with Ikea furniture and say this was the type of person that she was. And so that's something that I'm hoping that everyone will look critically toward and that's what's been on my mind as of late. So with that being said, let's get into these questions because you know that is my favorite part. Dear Viv, A couple of years ago, I was in a really toxic relationship and ended up seeking therapy, where I discovered how the lack of love, warmth, and attention, etc. in my household as a child results in my seeking constant affection and attention in my romantic relationships. For the same reason, I can't really even do hookups because I get attached so quickly wanting constant affection. 2018, I'm trying to heal myself and do better so I can prevent myself from settling. Any advice? First of all, I'd like to congratulate you because if you recognize that you have issues with attachment, which took me years to learn about myself, then you're already halfway there. I would say that the thing that I had to recognize when I was getting attached to people is that a lot of times my attachment to men came out of issues with codependency. I liked making men into pet projects where I would find men who I knew were not really, let's just say, on my level. And I would pour so much energy, so much attention, time, and money into them and then call it love and I thought that I was better for it and I also wanted to know why they didn't either reciprocate that energy even though I didn't really need anything from them and why they didn't appreciate it to the extent that I wanted and I realized that this came from two fundamental issues one I didn't understand the purpose of a relationship or love the purpose of romantic relationships are not distinct from or more special than the purpose of other relationships in your life and that purpose like I said before is to be a witness and to be a support in your life you are not supposed to own people and I thought that you could own men and I thought that that was a good way of keeping them around and I think that it's a lesson that every young person has to learn what love is and what love is not and love is not ownership but second to that I realized that romantic relationships provided a sort of instant gratification for me that I was looking for in other areas of my life and so my attachment was really me putting a lot more labor into romantic relationships to receive the instant gratification that I wasn't receiving in other areas of my life. For example, if I wanted to get good grades in school, I was going to have to put in weeks and weeks, months and months of effort, go to class and pay attention. But if I wanted affection from a man, all I would have to do is give it. If I wanted communication from a man, all I would have to do is text him or start an argument. If I wanted to hear back from that job that I so desperately wanted, I was going to be waiting weeks, months, filling in applications, doing resumes, going to interviews, and going through the anxiety of patience that life often takes. And so I think that if you find yourself in issues of attachment in relationships, the best thing to do is look into other areas of your life that you're detaching from to see what you're using romance as a stop gap or scapegoat for because that's almost always the case that when we are pouring everything that we have as adults who have to get through life make money pay rent into romantic relationships it's saying that you're neglecting another part of your life and you really need to look critically at what that is and in order to do that to be quite honest I've had to do it everyone have to do it you're going to have to be alone go through the anxiety of loneliness see what it is that you want for yourself do the work that you want to do for yourself and on yourself and stop neglecting yourself so that you get so deeply attached to yourself and centered in yourself and hopefully your spirituality and other things that make you feel good. So centered in your relationships with people like your friends that when a guy comes, There will not be any room for attachment because you'll have a standard of investment and he'll have to be equally invested 
in the things that you are invested in and equally as invested in you and you will be so deeply invested in yourself it won't be an automatic oh let me latch on to you because i'm missing something in my life dear viv what are your thoughts on free speech the first amendment and state censorship in general i'm actually super excited that you asked me this question about censorship because censorship is ironically something that has been on my mind a lot in the past year ever since i went to the whitney to see enf savonavis's censorship now i bought the book censorship now and i really encourage you all to buy it i think it's honestly like 97 dollars. i rented it from harvard's library so try to rent it from the library if you can i should actually rent it again and make a pdf so maybe i will censorship now is such a crazy book because it talks about how when you have a state that purports itself to provide free speech to all of its citizens it does so so that it can lower the stakes of art making so that the artist has no real voice and so if you see how that plays out now you see that everybody is an artist being an artist is a very low stakes game where you can make as much art as you want it doesn't really have to mean anything it simply has to be profitable and so the people the artists the intellectuals and the writers who were once historically the people who would hold up a mirror to the state and be like these are the abuses that we face these are the things that the people need now are lost in an amalgamation huge pool of voices all of which are silenced unless they're marketed and obviously revolution is not marketable and so i think that there needs to be more censorship if you look in other countries like chile which had had a dictatorial regime for a very long time they produce some of the best pop music in the world and i think that that's because they had to take a medium that wasn't being taken seriously and use it as a vehicle to protest the state because that was the only way that they were going to be heard and you find in places where people are censored they take art much more seriously and the artist is revered as somebody who is brave and courageous and willing to take up dialogues even if that means putting themselves in professional or sometimes physical bodily harm's way and am i saying that we need to be executing artists singers writers no but i'm saying that there is some merit to the idea of censorship and i don't think that it should be on the part of the state i think it should be on the part of the american people from our point of view we need to censor the things that we see and the things that we hear i mean ian savonavis talks about how even rap music is just constant propaganda for selling things and marketing lifestyles and honestly as a genre i like to argue is in decline we don't censor what we consume on tv So you can sit around and if you watch USA for long enough, you can literally view 10 hours of like horrid sexual violation via SVU or whatever. America does not censor anything. And I think that that's the reason why one, American listeners and viewers lack a lot of discernment. They can't really tell what they're viewing, what they're reading or what they believe. And I think that it also lends to the fact that artistry is not taken seriously. Anybody can be an artist when the artist is actually a very urgent and critical position that we need now more than ever. to point us in the right direction of where critique and dialogue should go. So in fact, we need more censorship, not state censorship. We need more censorship of the state. We need more censorship of the media as audience members and as citizens. Dear Viv, as someone who lacks discipline, I find myself constantly compiling movies and books and writing and other mentally fulfilling tasks I want to accomplish, but wasting way too much time on my phone or doing other mindless distracting activities. I'm sure many other people struggle with this during the social media age. Do you have any tips for self-discipline and breaking the dependency on my phone and social media? So first I would encourage you, and this is shameless plug and proper advice, to go read my essay, Love and Other Drugs, Five Myths About Social 
social media that I published in the latter half of 2017 because I talk about what I did and what I realized in my 21 days completely off of social media. I would have completely deleted social media forever if it hadn't been the fact that I interact with a lot of my readership through social media. But if you're fighting a social media addiction, which a lot of people in our generation are, you're right, you have to understand how that addiction develops in the first place. And trying to understand that involves understanding how user interfaces work. And that works by creating a seamless experience in which you actually disrupt time by creating a user experience where people can scroll, scroll, scroll. There's always new information. There's always something to be seen. It never, ever, ever stops. And so really, you could keep scrolling on Twitter and it would never, ever say, that's it, no more tweets. And you could keep scrolling on Instagram and it wouldn't say, that's it, no more photos. And so you have to be the one to disrupt your own user experience. And so I found that the best way to do that is one, using these programs outside of the apps that build them. Because when I use Twitter and Instagram on Safari, I find that the user experience is so much less enjoyable and so much less seamless that I can tell how long I've actually been using them. And also they have certain features like they don't have messaging or it takes a very long time to switch from one person's story to the next. And so I just end up leaving the app. And the second tip I would say is you need to actually log out. That's a big, big thing. When you're done using Twitter, log out of the app. And when you're done using Instagram, log out of the app. So if you're logging out, then 10 minutes later, if you're logging back in, you know that you're wasting your own time. You become more aware and this seamless user experience that this addiction is based upon becomes disrupted and you have more control over the way that you're using these apps. And I would say delete it. If you delete it for anything less than 30 days, nothing will be lost and you'll understand how much you don't need it. Dear Viv, I often hear people speak on mental wellness. I enjoyed the knowledge you dropped on self-intervention in one of your previous podcasts. I see people talk a lot about self-care and things alike, but what is the difference between self-intervention and self-reflection? I find it hard for me to differentiate the two when trying to figure out how to better myself. Well, I'd start by encouraging you to not think of self-intervention and self-reflection as distinct or separate things because they are integrated things that are part of the same process of self-progression. And self-reflection is something that should be constant. It should constantly be asking, how do I feel? What am I thinking about the people in my life? What am I thinking about myself? How do I feel about myself? Self-reflection is nothing more than constantly checking in on yourself. You're always with yourself. You're always in your own body. And so you have to be constantly reflective of the things that you say, the way that you make yourself and other people feel. That's self-reflection. Self-intervention is a process of thinking about things that are wrong. Intervening means to get in front of yourself and say, what's going on with me? And how can we fix these things that are going on with me? Self-intervention happens when you're thinking, I'm filled with anxiety, I have severe issues with depression, I don't know why my relationship to drugs or alcohol is the way that it is, or even just, I don't really understand my relationship with my family. Those are times when you need to say, okay, what's really going on? And those are times when you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself hard questions. How do I play into my own sadness? Am I a manipulative person? And self-intervention, I would say, is much more difficult than self-reflection. But if you're constantly self-reflecting, then it won't be impossible or unheard of to self-intervene because you're always having a constant dialogue with yourself. And that's what all of it is really about. It's all about keeping a constant dialogue with yourself so that you're not just becoming a victim of your own life or going through the process of your life without any awareness of what you're doing, how you're making yourself and other people feel. 
Dear Viv, I saw some of your comments on Twitter about Virgil Abloh's slave labor and the amount of waste generated by the fashion industry. Could you expand on your critiques on the state of fashion today? What do you think of fashion as a medium of art? Well, in the great words of one of the best and greatest fashion designers, in my opinion, of all time, Issey Miyake, clothes are not art, clothes are clothes. And when I think that he says, and when I say that clothes and fashion are not art, it's not art because clothes have an essential utility and anything that has an essential utility can't be art. Clothes are meant to be worn, food is meant to be eaten. So these things have never been art. They've always been about function. Food has to be edible. That's an essential purpose. Art can't be pinpointed to one essential function. I know I'm going to get a lot of backlash for that comment. You can take that how you will. Let's leave that aside. My comments about slave labor and the amount of waste generated by the fashion industry is because 30% of all of global waste is produced by the fashion industry alone. And when you think about who's consuming that, it is almost all exclusively the Western world. And this conversation is not at all separate from and has been deeply entrenched with my thoughts about our relationship to material things because the constant consumption of us, especially buying clothes, is contributing not only to this global waste, but it's also perpetuating the slave labor of the fashion industry. And it's not hyperbolic to call it slave labor. In 2012, I was sent by the U.S. Department of Education and Cultural Affairs to study climate change in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is one of the sweatshop centers of the world. I've seen a sweatshop. I've seen it. I've seen the women in it. I've seen people working and making garments. I was in an H&M factory sweatshop. And I can tell you firsthand that all of the cheap clothes that you're buying from Fashion Nova, H&M, Zara, they're not without a cost. And this is why I'm asking people to critically think about if they really need all of the things that they're buying. And to also think about if you do love fashion, what it truly means and takes to make a garment and I've been thinking about this because when I was in Morocco I met a lot of garment makers I met and saw several people who made shoes people who made leather bags I saw looms where people weaved scarves and I'm saying that these are things that are labor intensive are you willing to pay for that labor and if not do you really love fashion that much fashion is especially sensitive to manipulating our own insecurities our own issues with quote-unquote representation and then basically selling ourselves back to us and the end is almost always to buy clothes and I don't really think that people are critically looking at that or interpreting that and I think that it's kind of backwards that the people that tend to be spokespeople for fashion and people who claim themselves to be activists and feminists stand by while the mass excess produced by the fashion industry not only destroys the world quite literally but also ruins the lives of so many women who will never be allotted a true livelihood or real education throughout Southeast Asia, South Asia, East Asia, Cambodia, China, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and that there's nobody that's going to say, is enough enough? Do we really need more clothes? Especially given that this was nothing of what it was like in our parents' generation. And I think that that's why I get so upset about it, is that people act like it's an inevitability, the amount of clothes that we buy and that we need. People should have the ability to buy as many clothes as they want. No, because your parents didn't, your parents' parents didn't, and it wasn't at the expense of human life. And so there's no excuse for it. And I think that
that the fashion industry is especially hypocritical and that it's embarrassing. And if you think that I'm really exaggerating about this entire ordeal, then go watch the movie The True Cost on Netflix. Go watch that movie about sweatshop labor and the fashion industry and their lack of accountability about it, and then tell me that the person that's sitting here wearing Fashion Nova, H&M, and Zara, and then on the second hand claiming themselves to be a feminist is not a total hypocrite. So, in honor of Martin Luther King Day, this is my last question. Dear Viv, I wanted to ask you if you think schools should teach the letter from Birmingham jail instead of King's I Have a Dream speech. Although both are absolutely monumental and important, I feel as though the letter from Birmingham jail gives a much better picture of systematic racism than King's I Have a Dream speech. For those of you who don't know, King's letter from Birmingham jail is where he talks at length about how much he's disappointed by the white moderate and how much it is white liberalism and white people's moderate stance on politics of racial injustice that seeks to uphold and perpetuate that system even more so than white supremacists and the KKK. And this is a quintessential speech of Martin Luther King Jr.'s and I think that if you haven't read it that you have to read Letter from Birmingham Jail. Yes, I think that schools should teach that, but I think in accordance to I Have a Dream When I read Letter to Birmingham Jail, it actually contextualized the I Have a Dream speech. I realized just how short America had fallen of that dream for racial equality. And I think that it also seeks to humanize Martin Luther King because I Have a Dream is a speech that makes him so much more than a man. And in a lot of ways, he's deified by the black and white community alike in America as somebody who was above disappointment and who was always hopeful. And so when I think when he really takes time, a lot of time, because letter from Birmingham jail is a long letter, to talk about his disappointment and his mistakes and his misconceptions about the conscience of America, I think that that's when Martin Luther King became so much more than a deified figure of passive nonviolence to me. And I think that it is both the I Have a Dream speech as well as letter from Birmingham jail that allowed me to see this was a man. When you really talk about sacrifice, You're not just talking about a man who loved people despite the amount of hate that he himself received or the amount of apathy from the American people. You're talking about somebody who gave their life for a vision that they actually knew was beyond their reach at the time. And I think that the thing that's so sobering about Letter from Birmingham Jail is that you see that King has finally admitted that the dream that he had for America was beyond his reach at the time, and yet he still kept striving for it. And I think that when people try to paint Martin Luther King Jr. as a passive, nonviolent lover of white women, then I think it's because they don't understand that side of King. And I think that you really do need both to truly understand why he was America's prophet. So that's all the time that we have for today. I'm so excited to answer all of the questions that I still have in the next episode of Ask Viv. Thank you so much for sending in all of your resolutions for the new year. I'm hoping that you're working on them. Lord knows I'm working on mine. And I'm wishing you nothing but ease, grace, and happiness in this new year. More life, real life. I'm Bianca Vivian, and this is Ask Viv.
not too far to carry this Cause you could say this is not too far to carry this